Guam, the island in Micronesia, still hasn't recovered from Typhoon Mawa on May 24th. The Navy base itself and military families and retirees saw loss of utilities and damage to their homes and possessions. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr has an update on efforts to help those families. And Alex, tell us, first of all, exactly what happened there. Well, that storm sort of evolved into a Cat 4, Cat 5 typhoon as it headed towards Guam. And they weren't sure if it would make direct landfall or not. It went a little north of the island, but there were still 140-mile-hour winds, uh, rain that went sideways, and lots and lots of damage. It was over by the next morning, and Karen Phelan, who's been living on the island for the last nine years, is head of the Navy Marine Corps Relief Society. And she she told me a little bit about what it looked like the next morning. Literally eight-foot diameter trees just flattened, gas pumps flattened, uh, semi-trucks tossed, 20-foot co- containers tossed. And it was very surreal to me. I've never experienced anything like this. Wow, and probably cookies tossed, too. And how quickly was the naval base itself able to recover? The naval base did manage to recover a little faster than people living off base. They they got their power back after a few days. I mean, it's a big forward-deployed base. They needed to be operational. Although, actually, there were there was also a problem with flights coming in and out, and the military suspended people going on and off the island for, for about a week. Right, and do we know that they moved the ship's out of harbor and into the sea. Usually when there's a typhoon coming, they get the ships away from the docks and the moorings. You're absolutely right, Tom. They took the ships and they moved them away from the island so that that wouldn't happen. Karen Phelan talked a little bit about the base's recovery efforts. Everything went down, including DOD housing. And they did get power back relatively quickly, probably about eight days after the storm. But that's still a long time to live without power. They did have water, which was a good thing. And they have powered through. They've been very proactive in getting that back up and running as quickly as possible. Well, hopefully they had a lot of MREs so that they could have hot food, even if there wasn't power. Do we know whether that was the supplies were there? They did have supplies, and, and but losing groceries was one of the big problems because when you lose power and you live on a tropical island, you very quickly lose the food in your refrigerator. All right, so the Navy Marine Corps Relief Society, tell us more about it and what it's doing. They've been around for a long time, and they're sort of in place to help in exactly this kind of situation. The main thing they do is give grants and non, non-interest non loans to people when there's a crisis. So they were able to give $300 a piece to individuals and $600 to families. They, they offer that service for Navy, Marine Corps, active duty, and for retirees on the island. So that was about, by, as of yesterday, they had given out over $1.1 million, helped uh, over 2,000 active duty members and 118 retirees. Here's Karen Phelan talking about it. So the minute the social media went out about the grant, we were flooded with people. I have pictures of lines that people were waiting for two and three hours to come and see us so that they could get just a little bit of money to help them over having to throw away all of their food, having to stand, you know, stand in line for gas for two and three hours. Um, And that was the initial impact right after the storm. Wow. Sounds like they really were devastated out there. And this Relief Society, what else do they do besides grants? Grants is really their major thrust, but there are 
on Guam, there are three permanent employees. There's Karen, Karen's assistant, and then there's a nurse. And she doesn't act as a doctor. She doesn't do prescriptions or diagnoses, but she kind of does education and support. And apparently at that time, particularly for women with young children or pregnant women, having a nurse there to just kind of talk through the hardship was was a big help. Karen told me this story. We actually had a mom stop by our table last week and you could tell the stress on her face. You could tell that she was exhausted. And she was about, about seven months pregnant, which she told me. And I said, is, oh, is this your first? And she goes, no, it's my third. I have two at home, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and I'm seven months pregnant. And my husband is deployed. I live out mm. in town. I have no power. I have no water. And you could just see tears were just welling up in her eyes. Yeah, so this nurse on hand is really a shoulder to cry on for some people, a needed function. A shoulder to cry on, and Karen was saying, someone who can just say, we're all going through this terrible thing, and you're going to be all right, and here's some, you know, have two aspirin and call me in the morning. Sure, and what can people do to help? Because it sounds like they still need help. Karen says that they're really dependent on donations to give those grants to people, and obviously they've given out a lot over the last two weeks, and she's really hoping that people around the country will want to donate. She said if it's a $5 donation, it's still a big deal to her. You can go to the Relief Society's website, and you'll find a link to be able to send money to them and help the people on Guam. All right, and we'll put that link at federalnewsnetwork.com where we post this interview. Also a good Time to point out the Federal Employee Education and Assistance Fund, FIA, which also helps federal employees throughout the nation and sometimes overseas with short-term loans, grants that they might need for this type of disaster. And uh, it's a good time to point out that if you want to make a donation to FIA, now is the time to visit our website. Our annual Motorcycle Ride for Charity is coming up on June 23rd, and FIA is one of our big beneficiaries and our partner in this charitable event. So lots of ways to help feds in distress. That's great. And when people are in those crisis situations, they really need someone to step in and do something for them. All right. Well, we'll be there. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW Colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. 
Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, with the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama 
because these two are very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I happen to think so. Well, Dr. (laughs) David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. 
And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.